Hear that? That's the sound of a patient whose health data is protected from a cyber attack. And that, that's the sound of a financial system that's digitally secured from bad actors. Right now, there's an invisible war being fought on a digital battlefield that impacts what we do every day. That's why at Paraton, we do the can't be done to help protect the vital systems we rely on. Because if we don't, the alternative is unimaginable. Paraton. Coast to coast, border to border, and around the world. It's time for The Bill Alexander Show. The Bill Alexander Show is a guest-driven program where the topics are diverse and entertaining. Laugh and learn while you listen to one of the best hours of online radio. Now, here's your host, Bill Alexander. Hi, everyone. Yours truly, William Eric Alexander. All my friends call me Bill, and welcome to the Bill Alexander Show. It is a treat to have you here. Not only is it a treat to have you here, but it's also a treat to have this individual on the other end of the phone line. And the reason I say that is because I grew up watching the TV program based in Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania. And for some of you that don't know where Beaver Falls is, it's about 40 minutes north of the city of Pittsburgh, off of I-79, going towards Erie. And the funny thing is, I just found out that the cast of the program, Mr. Belvedere, was never in Beaver Falls. On the phone line right now, I'm talking to the individual who played Marsha Owens. Eileen Graff, how are you doing today? Hey, Bill. I'm great. You know, we, um, our cast of Mr. Belvedere, the show takes place, as you said, in Beaver, Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania. And when we were on TV, there were several other uh, successful family situation comedies. And they would get to go to these amazing places like Paris and Hawaii and, and the South Seas and all of this stuff. And we would say, can't we like go to Beaver Falls? And they looked at us and said, no, no, we're not going to forget it. You're not, go- you're not even going to go to Pittsburgh. Forget about it. So we always had this kind of inferiority complex that not only weren't we going to Paris and Hawaii, we weren't even going to Beaver to Falls. Pittsburgh. Yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah. That, that's, that's really sad. It really is. But what's interesting about the program is that it was based on the famous movie series that was done in the 1940s. And right. again, they updated it, bringing um, Mr. Belvedere, or Lynn Belvedere, who was played by Christopher Hewitt, to basically take come in as the butler of a family whose husband, George, played by Bob Euchre, is a sports writer for one of the Pittsburgh newspaper. You end up, you are a uh, going to law school, and you have three kids: Kevin, Heather, and Wesley. When they pitched the show idea to you, did you understand why they chose Beaver Falls? No. <laughs> 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 not not at all. You know, I I never thought about it. I think they wanted something that was uh, a suburby kind of of a big city, but not like a New York suburb okay. or an LA suburb. You know, Pittsburgh is a it's a wonderful town. I I I have very fond memories of playing Pittsburgh and visiting Pittsburgh. Um, but it's it's a manageable town, and it's. Um, I think it was kind of 
the right size and the and, and let's face it, Beaver Falls is a, it's a wonderful name. It's, yes, it's, it is. It's it's, it's almost <laughs> funny. And so I think that might have had something to do with it. But me personally, I never gave it a second thought as to where <laughs> where where the show was located other than, you know, it was sort of like um, general America. Okay. With with all the good stuff that that comes along and, with. And that would have made sense because the program aired for five years. And yeah. you got to play opposite of... Most of us know him as a sports announcer, Bob Euchre, which must have been must have been interesting in its own right. Interesting and really fun and really I... funny. Oh my gosh, just like one of the funniest people I've ever met in my life. You know, he he really got famous doing Miller Lite commercials yes. and by he was one of Johnny Carson's favorite guests. And he cultivated a character for himself that was very deadpan very dry humor. He never cracked a smile. And that just became hugely, hugely successful. And when he was with us, he just was, he didn't do that. You know, every once in a while, he would slip into that other kind of character. But he was loose and fun and funny, loved to laugh, loved to smile, loved to make us laugh. That was, and loved to make Christopher laugh. That I think there were times when they lived to make each other laugh. And and what a, you know, for two guys that couldn't have come up differently. Christopher, right. very proper, well-trained English thespian. Um, and Bob, a baseball player. They just adored each other. And it was so nice to see. And and I'm I'm trying to re- I'm trying to remember because um, the older I get, the less I do remember. Is that <laughs> wait? When, <just> wait. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in my. I'm in my. I'm going on the downside of fifty of my fifties right now, so I'm getting there real quick. But <laughs> whenever Mr. Belvedere came out, was it after the movie Major League, or was it just actually from what I'm looking at now? It was 1989 when Euchre pl- when Bob played the announcer in Major League, which was the big movie at the time, right before mm-hmm. the final season of. Mr. Belvedere, right. I didn't realize that right. they coincided the way they did. You know what? I, you know, it, <laughs> it's been a long time for me too. I didn't really remember that either. Um, but he was so brilliant in Major League. Oh yes. And no, Major League. He told us stories about doing Major League. So it was, um, yeah. Well, we were we were working from like 80, 1985 to ninety. Right. Is when we were did the show. And he told us, you know, he, he made up a lot of the stuff that he did in Major League. They just sort of said, here's the situation, go. And he did, he did Bob. You know, he created that character, and man, he did a great job. So you're, you're in this cast, and, and, and if you don't mind me asking, how old were you when you were, when you were playing the mother on this program? Well, I... I, oddly enough, I was only like 15 or 16 years older than my oldest child. (laughs) You know, they had me playing a little older. They had him playing younger. So um, I was in my early 30s and um, it was it was a perfect it was a great time of life for me. I had a very young child. I had a you know, my daughter was essentially a baby when we started doing the show and 
it gave me the opportunity to um, mother older children to sort mm-hmm. of see what was coming down the pike. And I was really <laughs> spoiled because Bryce Beckham, who played the youngest boy, Wesley, what is crazy smart and ridiculously talented and so fast and quick that I thought that that's what children were like. <laughs> yeah, okay. So I had high expectations. Uh, and I had high expectations for him because I'd worked with a lot of kids, but I'd never worked with anybody quite like him before. He was just extraordinary. And so we put, we expected a lot from him and he always delivered. And then as my daughter got to be the ages that, um, you know, like eight, nine, ten years old, I would look back and say, oh my gosh, I, now I know what a regular eight-year-old is like. Okay. Um, Bryce was never <laughs> a regular eight-year-old. He was so ahead of the curve. It was it was amazing. And I just the, the, the best guy. I just love him. Now, the, the interesting thing is, is with, with Mr. Belvedere, they touched some very interesting topics that you wouldn't have assumed would have been on a sitcom, especially in the 80s, whenever, for example, when one of Wesley's classmates contracted HIV, which was something that we really didn't know about then, and mm-hmm. introduced that to the public in a sitcom-type situation. Yeah, well, that story arose from real life. Our executive producers, um, Jeff Stein and Frank Dungan, their manager... Uh, they had a couple that were their managers, and they had twins, little twin babies. The twins, the boy, contracted AIDS from a blood transfusion mm-hmm. as a baby. And they ran up against so much prejudice. And, oh, it was just terrible what, what happened when they got when the they got a little older and they were trying to find, like, a preschool for their daughter. And nobody wanted to touch them. Nobody wanted to be around them because this baby had AIDS. And so Frank and Jeff really took this very, very seriously. They were very close with their managers and said, we need to do a story about AIDS. And wow, it it was, it was hard to do because we wanted to get it right. Right. But we all felt honored that we were being entrusted to give this information out to people who might not have even ever heard of it before. Uh-huh. You know, we all knew it because I was in the theater. I knew too many people that had it. I knew people who died. And so it was a part of my life. But for a lot of people in America, they didn't know anything about it. And right. um, it was like I said, it was an it was an honor to be able to give out that information. And there was another episode, which I always thought was odd, when Kevin wanted to be Amish, which I thought was very interesting. (laughs) I think they wanted a Pennsylvania story. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was a little, it was a little odd. Um, Yeah, because his friends were going on the Rumspringer and, you know, they got to do all those crazy things. And, you know, yeah, sometimes you just have an episode that's silly. <laughs> Which is interesting because the Amish in Pennsylvania is in the middle of the state. And uh-huh. with Beaver Falls is on the western part of the state. Right. It was actually closer to Ohio's Amish than it would be Pennsylvania's Amish. Which I thought was interesting at the time. And I'm going, did they get this right or did they... Because everybody thinks 
everything in Pennsylvania is next to each other. Like Pittsburgh's next to Philadelphia, oh. and Harris is next. Harrisburg is next to, to Beaver Falls. They don't realize how big the state is. They just oh, recognize these landmarks and think it's huge. And oh, the thing it's, that's interesting about it's very, very big, and the two big cities are on opposite coasts, are on right. opposite ends of the state, and we don't know much about the middle except for. State College, Pennsylvania, which right. is like right in the middle, right? Yes. And we just don't know a whole lot about Pennsylvania other than the two, well, I mean, Philadelphia, extraordinarily right. important city, and um, and a lot of farmland, and mm-hmm. we just, you know, we're ignorant. And I, I don't know whether Jeff and Frank were ignorant or if they just, or well, maybe I'm reading the whole thing wrong, you know, I Well, don't I think know. they should have brought you to Beaver <laughs> Falls and you could have figured that out then. Um, if you would if actually, only they would have let us go. <laughs> if only they would have let us go to Beaver Falls. <laughs> so, Eileen, before you started working on Mr. Belvedere, how long were you act? I mean, in the field of acting? Oh, let's see, fifteen years. Okay, and yeah, where did you? I mean, get I, your... I was a, I, I was a veteran. I'd been around. I'd done three Broadway shows. I'd done lots of guesting. I did lots of pilots. I did a lot of theater. Um, and uh, Mr. Belvedere was just sort of like the next job, and happily enough, it turned into a really good job. So what? What? So you did you did stage work? Mm-hmm. Where would you rather work? Would you rather do TV or would you rather be on Broadway? I I you know people always wonder that, and you know it's like, what do you like better, apples or oranges? Mm-hmm. Everything is precious. Every every form has its pros and cons and pluses and minuses stage work is fantastic you're live there's people it's exciting you know you there's no retakes you learn your show when you do your show you're you're challenged to be disciplined i mean i did i i was in long-running shows i did grease on broadway for over two years eight shows a week and Mm -hmm. you have to find the discipline and the drive in order to create the, you know, you're doing the same exact show all those times, but it's a different audience every time. So you learn all about um, dedication and discipline, and, but it's hard work. And you go into TV and suddenly the work um, is so different in terms of the mechanics of it. You know what I mean? Because yes. you're working in front of a camera. You're not doing every week as a new script. But, you know, Bill, at the heart of it, it's, it's we're just telling stories that we're all still cavemen sitting around the campfire telling stories. So as long as we're getting our story out, um, we just love doing it all. Stage work is physically harder, though, I will say. It is, it's just very demanding. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you brought that up, and I'm also glad you brought up Greece because this is where I make my connection. My son, who just graduated from college oh with gosh. his degree in musical theater... Really, an actor, and he's been doing it. And his one of his his big roles is he played Knicky in Greece when he was in high school. Oh but, my gosh! And I always where did he go to? Where did he go to college? He went to a small university south of Pittsburgh called California California University of Pennsylvania, and he's been going out on all these auditions, and uh-huh. he's had a couple job offers. But he said this summer he was going to stay home in the area. And he was going to work for a local community theater that basically got him in love with theater. And he has two roles this summer. He is the lead in Pippin. And he's playing the Beast in Beauty and the Beast. 
Nice. So, well, yeah. he's going to get some great experience. Good for him. Yeah, and he's been acting. He's he's been acting. Oh, it seems like forever. The first the first musical he was in actually play is he was in his kindergarten his preschool play and he played the Grinch. <laughs> which was perfect because he didn't say a word and he had the nastiest scowl on his face. And we knew right then and there that he was going to be an actor, but no, he, he loves it. And I, and when I talk to, when I talk to actors and actresses like yourself, I ask them, what would you, what advice would you give a new actor coming out from school, getting ready to start wherever it may be? Oh, I, I think artistically um be prepared know how to do as many things as you can so we all know how to act we, i mean some uh you know we don't all know how to act but we all say we know how to act we can sing i can't dance hopefully he can dance um everybody these days especially in the theater has to be able to know how to do everything they all are gymnasts and they all play instruments and they mm-hmm. all speak foreign languages and they're, they're just phenomenal so I would suggest that you learn how to do as many things. Martial arts, whatever you see happening on TV or in film or in shows, what are those people doing? And do I physically know how to do those things? Learn how to do as much as you can so that if you get a call that says, well, um, you have to, you're going to try out for a show, but, but the main character is a kung fu master and he has to be able to dance on the edge of a sword and sing really high notes you can say yeah i can do that right so the you know and while you're young and you have time take those and and of course i know classes are expensive and that's always a problem especially for young actors when i'm telling you even you know you finished college you had, you, you paid all that money for college and now i'm telling you take more lessons but if you can swing it if you can swing it well, the other thing is is to be good to yourself and be patient and and know that it's it's for some people it happens overnight but for most people it doesn't you know just yeah. keep going on as many auditions as you can yeah and and i it didn't cost us anything because he got a full scholarship to to go to <laughs> wow. musical theater school because yeah he he is very talented and and i i play the proud dad when i talk about him because of, of seeing what he's done and, and being on the ground for watching someone go through those struggles, even so much so that he knows how to build sets. He knows how to do marketing. He knows how to do all this. Perfect. And he's working for a theater right now where he's doing all that while rehearsing for what he asked, what he's going to be performing in later this summer. So, right. As, right. Uh, well, you know, when I, when I graduated from college, I went into a summer on my college at a summer stock company and I went into the summer stock company, and it was the same thing. I mean, mm-hmm. if you want a set, you better build it. If you want a right. costume, you better sew it. So I learned how to – and my college training was very complete, was very well-rounded. We learned all about everything there was to learn at the time. Nowadays, they have to know so much more because actors are now small businesses. Yes. We don't have – we have to promote ourselves, and we have to know uh, all about social media, and we have to know how to make – the world notice us without um, any help from the outside world. So, but you know, kids are very tech savvy, but it's, it's another layer of things that they have to know how to do. So when you started in, in the industry, did you want to sing and dance or did you just want to act or did you just want to do everything? 
I started as a singer, and I still think of myself as a singer that somehow got involved in acting. Okay. <laughs> Uh, uh, my dad was a singer. There was my mom was a musician. So I've, I've been singing forever. Well, and can we I, can, wait? I, can we stop for a second and tell my audience mm-hmm. who your dad is and who he sang with? Oh well, I don't. You know, my dad was not a famous person, but he he had a nice career as a as a uh, a singer. He had a successful vocal group in Las Vegas during the fifties and. They opened for Frank Sinatra and all sorts of people, and he toured for a long time with a reboot of the Pied Pipers. Pipers. And he, yeah, he sang on a million jingles and a million records. And but you know he he had a really nice career where you could just be a plain person and have nobody know who you are. <laughs> I understand <laughs> that because whenever I read that your dad was one of the Pied Pipers, and not uh-huh. only do I do this, I'm also I. I used to do big band music years ago, but I'm also an oldies disc jockey for a radio station in the region. And ah. sometimes when I do a, a specialty show, sometimes some of the music the Pied Pipers does actually shows up on my playlist, which is kind of nice uh-huh. to be able to hear that stuff. Because back then, music was so innocent, or at least it sounded uh-huh. innocent. Let's just say that. <laughs> well, you know, uh, the, it, perhaps innocent, but in its way, very sophisticated. You listen to a great big band arrangement and you hear what's going on in the brass and those chords and the, and the rhythmic figures and how tricky that music really was. I think innocent in terms of, um, we weren't allowed to say the kinds of things we're allowed to say now. So everything had to be much more subtle. They were still talking about love and what people who are in love do, but they, they didn't come out and say it bluntly the way we say it now. So, I mean, Cole Porter was birds do it, bees do it, even educated fleas do it. What do you think he was talking about? But he had to find a clever, poetic, witty, um, subtle way of saying things that people just say out loud now. So it was a more sophisticated way of doing things, even though to our ears it may sound simple. Do I make sense? Oh, you make all the sense in the world. Okay. Um, all right. Because I, I definitely understand um, what you're talking about, because again, being in, not really being the music field, I got into radio because I can't play a musical instrument to save my life. And I figured radio <laughs> was the best of both worlds. So it worked out really well for me. Mm-hmm. But when you look at your career, um, and, and I'm looking through some of the stuff that you've done in the past and you've done, um, Guest appearances and, and and stuff. You were on Three is Company. You were on Mork and Mindy. You were on Laverne and Shirley. You were on Angie. You were on some of these shows that have a a following that would be considered today as an iconic TV program, which is kind of cool. And I mean, it had to be something different to be able to work with Robin Williams in the early set of his career when he was beginning. Because that was an unbridled talent there that no one knew what he was going to do next. Unbridled is a really good way of putting it. I did three episodes of Mork and Mindy, and each, every experience with him was like gold. It just was, you know, you want a master class in comic improvisation, just watch Robin Williams and Jonathan... um, winters riffing off of each other you could just sit there and watch them 
do the thing that they did so brilliantly and say, oh, God, they're so talented, but there is a rhythm to what they're doing. There's a timing to what they're doing. There's a, a pacing. There's a structure. And it, it was it was fabulous and educational at the same time. And Robin was, you know, he was a Juilliard-trained actor. So mm-hmm. when you were doing scenes with him, he just would click right into actor mode and give you everything he had. You know, look at you right in the eye, be there for you as an acting partner. It was uh, it was a pleasure. It was just a pleasure. So how was it working with John Ritter on Three is Company? Three's Company. Let me tell you about Three's Company to this day. And that was a long time ago. And I was much younger. 1983. <laughs> this, it wasn't that long ago. There you go. The... Um, the show that, aside from Mr. Belvedere, of course, the show that I get the most recognition from, from people, of all the things I did, is Three's Company. I swear to God, I, I, I walk into a diner in New York, and the cashier goes, oh, my God, you were on that episode of Three's Company where Jack was upstairs for the restaurant. I say, how do you, number one, how do you know that, and how did you recognize me? And they go, oh, you look exactly alike. And I'm thinking, oh, man, I do not look exactly alike, but thank you very much. But the three company fans are from another world. I, I, yeah. I we just did um, in the fall the Mr. Belvedere family. We did an autograph show in New Jersey, and I can't tell you how many people wanted to talk about three company because that's a phenomenon. And John Ritter was the doll of all time. We had so much fun. Uh, it was. It, it was like a little week of magic. You know, he just so sweet and kind and just wanting to have a good time and very professional. It was lovely. He was lovely. Now, everybody probably talks about the other one, but the one I want to know about is working with Buddy Epson on Barnaby Jones. Oh, like I remember. It was like 500 <laughs> years ago. 1979. Uh, it was my first job. It was my first TV job. One of my very first jobs when we moved out here to California from New York. And I got this two-parter, Barnaby Jones. And, I mean, Buddy Epson is a legend. I mean, it's Buddy Epson. Give me a break. But he, he was, he, you know, he was there. He did his job. He was nice. He was professional. Um, he sat and did what he had to do and talked and was very, you know, friendly. And and I was just kind of, I wasn't, I had done a lot of on-camera work because I had done a lot of commercials. Okay. So I, I knew about the camera. That wasn't, it wasn't an odd thing to me. Um, but being on a, like a Hollywood set for the first time, there was so much I, ha- I still had to suss out and learn. And um, most of my work was with Mark Shera, who was, uh, just a great guy. We had a great, and Lee Merriweather. Forget it. I I t- went total fangirl on Lee Mer- Merriweather because I remembered her as being Miss America, and I've worked with her since. And um, we we see each other, you know, from time to time, and we know each other. And I I said to her not too many years ago, I said when we did Barnaby Jones together, it was, I said. I, I hope I didn't scare you. It's just that I was so overwhelmed with meeting Miss America from when I right. was like a little girl. She said, no, it just happens all the time. Don't worry about it. But Buddy Epson, you know, it was his show. He liked a nice, relaxed pace. He didn't like things to be frantic. It was really 
I think it was a great first um, episodic experience for me. I think it was just right. When I look at you doing Mr. Belvedere, it said you did 117 episodes over the five years. Now, mm-hmm. that's a lot compared to today's TV shoot schedule. Do you feel that it was more difficult when you actually did a TV series than what people are dealing with now? Oh, what an interesting question. Um, yeah, they don't do... Well, you know, it depends. Like, the networks are still doing a lot of shows every season. But, uh, you know, we have this joke about... I love watching those British TV series on BritBox and Acorn and whatever, or, or streaming shows where a season is, like, three episodes. Right. <laughs> The show's been on for 50 years, and they've done 10 episodes. <laughs> um, we just got used, you get used to the pace. You just, you just do, uh, it, especially in comedy. It, it moves fast. Everything happens fast, and you, you work fast. You work professionally. You get it done. On to the next. And I like working that way. I enjoy that. I, I, like, I like doing it. Doing a great job, having a good time, done. Now what are we doing? So it was good. It meshed well with my personality. So when you did Mr. Belvedere, and again, you had five great years of doing it, did you want to try to recreate that again with another series, or was it never offered to you again? Well, in all honesty, I never, I, I, another one never happened for me like that. Um. I don't know if you sort of get become not typecast is the wrong word, but it was like, Oh no, she was that mom. So we don't want her to be this mom or whatever. So that never really happened for me again. And do I wish that it would? Absolutely. I, I would, I would go back to doing something like that in a heartbeat. It's, it's great work. It, it the schedule is fantastic. It pays well. You, you earn enough money to get your insurance. You know, there's really, <laughs> There's, and if you're working with good people, there's really, as as far as I can see, is that there really is no downside. Right. Because um, recently I had the the uh, the pleasure of talking to Michael Learned, and she's doing a new Netflix series now, and she uh-huh. is in her 80s, and she said the same thing. Just being able to go back to work, I'm available. Just let me know when you need me to be there, and that's right. And and that's it because, unfortunately. And and I thought it was changing, but maybe I'm wrong, that the older a guy gets, he still has the offer of work. But an older a woman gets, the job offers aren't there. Is there a reason why in your mind? Well, I think, it, I mean, we can get political. It's just ageism and, um, you know, people think that older women have nothing to offer, whereas I strenuously disagree. I think we've got an awful lot to offer and... Um, and I wish, I wish it weren't so, you know, people always say, yeah, but you know, older women, Grace and Frankie, I say, yeah, that's two roles, right? Grace and Frankie, superstars, right? Superstars. So, um, and uh, I don't know, it's, it's kind of a downer. I, I, I certainly wish that there were more stories for women in their fifties, sixties, seventies, eighties, but, um, I, I don't see it happening until, more more and more women get into positions of power and can gotcha. create what they want to create. So right now, we finally made it through two years of a pandemic. Are you performing live doing your stage shows? 
I'm going to be doing, um, I've got a little something coming up in a few weeks in Palm Springs. I'm going to be doing something with a friend of mine, uh, Glenn Rosenblum. He's a theater, musical theater savant and historian. And he does these wonderful evenings where we tell stories, sort of like we have been, Bill, you know, stories mm-hmm. about show, but his, his very Broadway-oriented. So we're going to be talking about the Broadway musicals of the 1970s. Oh, and okay. I will be singing uh, during that evening, so I'm really looking forward to that. And then just far into the future in December, on December 28th, I'm going to be doing my Eileen Graff holiday show at uh, Feinstein's 54 Below in New York. Um, which we were supposed to do this past December and got canceled because of COVID. They, we got canceled after our sound check and rehearsal at oh. the club. Yeah. Oh. And it was very, very disappointing. Um, so we're going we're gonna to keep your fingers crossed for us that December 28th, we're going to be back in New York to do the holiday show. And it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful show. And I, I can't wait to share it with people. So before the pandemic, did you were you on the road a lot or did you just do selected programs on the road a lot what you mean i mean did you did you actually go to different locations or did you just um do them whenever you felt like it in in venues that you were familiar with there you go yeah yeah um i'll get an idea say i really want to play the catalina jazz club in la okay so I make that happen. Or, gee, I think it would be fun to play Birdland in New York, and I make it happen. That's pretty much, um, you know, we're talking about your son, is that we are all now small businesses, and everything, we pretty much generate our own work. We have to figure out what we want to do, and you have to figure out who to get in touch with, and you have to figure out how to make a pitch. And hopefully it works out, and you get to share your stories with uh, an audience. So I also see that you're also doing teaching um, other musicians or singers on technique. Is that correct? Well, my husband, my husband's name is Ben Lanzaroni, and he is a, uh, a Hollywood composer. He's a fantastic ASCAP award-winning composer. He wrote a zillion hours of music for television. And I teach a workshop called Making the Song Your Own where we teach people um, how to become better song interpreters and performers. And it's, uh, it's a great pleasure for me. I, you know, Ben and I, my husband Ben and I figured that between us, we had over a hundred years of experience. Oh, wow. <laughs> so we thought we might have something to offer. <laughs> and I love it. I love teaching. I love um I don't know if you've ever done any teaching, but I'm sure your teachers in the audience know that moment when you've gotten through to somebody and they understand what you're talking about and they can deliver. You know, it's not only, oh, yes, I understand what you mean. And now I'm going to do it. It's so exciting. And um, our students are not um, like kids. They're not young people. Most of my students are people that used to be used to be in the music business or were music majors in college or did a lot of performing and then due to the realities of our business right. realized that they probably weren't going to make the same kind of paycheck that they would if they got a real job mm-hmm. but they always had a hole in their heart where music lived and we give them the opportunity to express themselves through song and they love it we love them and i'll tell you it teaching has made me a much better singer i think 
Now, with the people that you said, since you said it's an older clientele, have some of them tried to go out and and, and perform publicly to, to see what it was like again? Oh, yeah, yeah. I have a former student who just did a, a cabaret evening in New York, and she's going to be coming to L.A. to do it. She had a lot of experience. I have another student who just left L.A., in fact. she's uh, She had done shows, off-Broadway shows in New York and gave it up and then started taking class and realized how much she loved it. And she moved back home to uh, another state and started doing everything that was available there. She's like a big star all of a sudden in her home state Mm -hmm. because she comes with such good training and with such wonderful experience. So, yeah, people, they get inspired and they put stuff together for themselves. And boy, do I love seeing them blossom. It's just the greatest. So with us dealing with, with the pandemic the last two years, Mm-hmm. Have you noticed a a greater appreciation for performers? Because I don't think a lot of people realized what life was going to be like without entertainment. Because we went through a period of time where the only thing you could see is what you've seen before. There was nothing new. It wasn't live. And only within the last few months in this region, we've started to see live performances again. And I think Uh there's a new appreciation for what people do in front of an audience. I think you're absolutely 100 percent correct. And and I can give you a real some that we can back that up. Um, I am an officer of the Western region of the Entertainment Community Fund, formerly the Actors Fund. Now, this is an organization that provides um, a safety net as it were, for entertainment professionals. Everybody in arts and entertainment is qualified to get help from the Actors Fund if they need it. And uh, entertainment, we have a brand new name. I have to keep remembering to say Entertainment Community Fund. And during the pandemic, we gave out over $26 million to entertainment professionals in need. And that didn't just come from a small group of people who were in show business. It's exactly what you were saying, Bill. It was people all across the country who were sitting on their couch all of a sudden saying, what would I do without these people who are bringing me entertainment that are keeping me from going crazy? And we got contributions from people that never would have thought about it before, but who were so grateful that there was something to watch on TV and that people were risking their lives to make product for them. Um, It was astonishing, absolutely astonishing. And the Entertainment Community Fund did a phenomenal job in identifying people who needed help, helping people get health insurance. You know, in our business, you have to either earn a certain amount of money every year or work a certain number of weeks, depending on your union. And when the pandemic shut down everybody's job, everybody left their health insurance. Right. So the uh, the fund just worked overtime identifying different sources to get health insurance for people. So I think you're 100% right. People have a new appreciation for what we do, and we have a huge appreciation for our audiences who stuck by us through all of this. Because I know that there were a few performances that my wife and I had tickets to, and of course we could have gotten refunds, and whenever they said that we could have gotten it, we said, no, you guys keep it because you know we know that you're going to need it more than we are just to, to help make 
to keep the lights on and whatever needed to be for some of these theaters, even in Pittsburgh, because they were having such a hard time struggling. And I know other people that did the same thing because we realized how important that is to have right. that level of entertainment. Now, the other thing, and you, and you talk about teaching, and one thing we're noticing, especially throughout the United States, which just breaks my heart because I've had a son who, who is, uh, was a product of these classes, and I have a 14-year-old daughter who is in a, a music program at the school she's at, is we're noticing that band music and these programs are being cut because of funding it's it's a sin it's an absolute sin i my husband and i have a daughter her name is nika graf lanzaroni and she's also a performer and she's been on broadway and she's done a lot of regional theater she's uh she's a regular uh worker but she was you know, she had access to every kind of training that you can get because her dad and I were able to provide her with that. But she was the product of a public high school education mm-hmm. in a school that had a musical theater major in the high school. Yeah. And her school was a magnet program. It was a music academy within a large urban high school. And it couldn't have been better. It just couldn't have been better. And the parents worked our tails off, constantly fundraising to make sure that this program could survive. And I, like you, it just breaks my heart to see that music and the arts get cut. The first thing that gets cut, and it's so short-sighted because I firmly believe that an arts education is never wasted, ever. But the thing that frustrates me and again, having, and I have three kids. Um, the middle one didn't go into theater or it doesn't express a liking in music. Well, my older, my bookends do, my oldest and my youngest. But what frustrates me is, is that people don't realize 10, 20, 30 years from now, you're still going to need entertainment to help you relax, to help you take your mind off trouble from music to to movies to whatever it may be but yet we're cutting that creative that creative outlet that we give these kids who are trying to find themselves and we're eliminating it but yet and and don't get me wrong i love the i love athletics because i played when i was a kid but we keep pushing money into that and these people are not going to play football when they're 50 are they going to play a piano when they're 50? Probably. Are they going to sing in a local choir group? Probably. Mm-hmm. But we're, we're missing the boat on this, and we're not showing how important the creative arts are because we are, we are, we're saying, well, they're just having fun. Well, what's wrong with having fun and still working? Do you know what one of the greatest economic engines of New York City is? Broadway. Probably theater. <laughs> Broadway Theater brings in more money every year than all of the sports teams in the area combined. Mm -hmm. I read that. So for it's a it's a staggering thing, and nobody ever believes. But I've I've read the statistics that theater and the associated businesses bring in billions. I don't know. Yeah, I I don't want to say things that I can't back up, but it's. But it's so, I mean, let's, let's forget about how, you know, the creative and the art and the soul and having to share our humanity. You want to be that way? Okay, let's be that way. Let's talk about money. 
right? It brings in a lot of money. But and that's the other thing that people don't understand is, okay, so I'm going to see a show no matter where it's at, and there are restaurants and bars that are around these locations. Well, where are the people going before and after the show? They're going to the restaurants, they're going to the bars, and they're keeping that night going to help keep it going on longer. And yet we don't realize that, like you said, it is an economic driver that a lot of people don't think about because we're more worried about other things. I'd rather have I'd rather have people singing and entertaining than a lot of other things that we have going on right now because I don't think we'd be in, in the situation we were in if more people were involved. I think that's a really good point. You're not going to get any argument from me on this, you know. I'm, I'm I kind of figured that. That's why I wanted to bring it up. <laughs> I'm a hundred percent. You know, I, I grew up in this business. I I grew up with people of great of great communicators, people with big hearts, people highly skilled people yeah. who um, who were trained from like my parents are the product of New York City public school education, and they got music. They were music majors at Brooklyn College, free higher education yeah. in New York City, trained beautifully. Um, I was a product of New York City public schools. We had Glee Club and music starting in kindergarten. Of then. But then we didn't have it, you know, then it mm-hmm. gets dropped. But but to 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 see the arts get such short shrift in our society yeah. and no government support, when you look at all the great cultural centers throughout Europe and other countries, it just say, why, why can't we be a little bit more like that? You know, why can't we acknowledge that art is important to the human condition and, and not just, Foot. I mean, well, I know people I, love sports, and, and it's and, important. You know, it's it's all important. But you know, I, I wish we got a little bit more bigger piece of the pie. But the other thing is too is, and and we've learned this, especially over the last two years, that when people were stuck in their homes, where did they go to? They went to YouTube. They went to these streaming services to find performances of 40 years ago that they remember they went Mm. to find this stuff and if we didn't have i mean i thank goodness for youtube they archived a lot of this stuff i mean having the the old uh, sinatra shows or the dean martin his weekly program whatever it may be people are able to experience it and 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 get that understanding of what it was like during a different time and maybe Mm -hmm. it was easier maybe it was better i don't know but at least we were able to share that. And now if we just get rid of it, what's going to happen in 20 years? Uh, it beats me. I don't know. I don't know if I'm going to be around to see it. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you are, to be honest with you. Thank but, you. Uh, Thank you. But again, you know, it, just... it... Go ahead. It's okay. No, go ahead. Go. I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, that's all right. I think that... Um, the entertainment industry is driven by people who want to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think there would be Broadway if there weren't people who just passionately had to do it. Right. I don't know if there would be movies if there weren't people who felt that it was their calling and they had to do it. And it's it's not like, you know, there has to be grocery stores because we have to eat. So right. that's something different. It's not driven by people who feel like I have to sell apples i Mm -hmm. have to you know be i have to whatever you know business it is we in our business 
we're the drivers of this whole thing because we love it so much and right. we want to share these stories so much that we put, put ourselves on the line every day, every day for people so that they can sit back and, and put their feet up and forget about their horrible commute or forget that they're not allowed out anymore right. because of COVID. They can just forget because we want to share our humanity. That's, that's what we need to do. And we want to do that. And we, that's our service. I always say that our business is a, it's our service to, to you know, I, I really feel like I'm in service to people in my business. What I do, I, I, when I sing a song in a club, I want people to say, Oh my God, I have felt that. I know exactly that feeling. I know what she's talking about. I, I commiserate, I understand, because we're sharing our lives as human beings. And if we can understand each other, maybe we have a better shot at not annihilating each other. Uh, I don't yeah, know. I agree totally. Eileen, thank you very much. This was a total pleasure. Um, I really enjoyed it, just talking about what you've done, what you're doing, um, and what you're going to be doing. This is just fantastic. I really appreciate you taking time talking with me this evening. Well, it was my pleasure. You asked some great questions, and I enjoyed it very much. Thank you very much for joining me this evening. I really enjoyed talking to you, and hopefully you have a great night and have a great rest of the year. Good luck with everything, and I hope you're able to perform live so you don't have to worry about being canceled this year. <laughs> Thank you, I think. <laughs> <laughs> have a great Take night. Take care, Bill. Bye-bye. <laughs> Hey, a big thank you goes out to Eileen Graff. What a pleasure that was to talk to her about Mr. Belvedere, her early days in TV, and her music career. What a pleasure that was. Eileen, thank you very much, and thank you for listening to The Bill Alexander Show. Everybody, you have a great day. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you for listening to The Bill Alexander Show. The Bill Alexander Show is a million-dollar baby production. For more information, go to thebillalexandershow.com. Hear that? That's the sound of a patient whose health data is protected from a cyber attack. And that, that's the sound of a financial system that's digitally secured from bad actors. Right now, there's an invisible war being fought on a digital battlefield. It impacts what we do every day. That's why at Paraton, we do the can't be done to help protect the vital systems we rely on. Because if we don't, the alternative is unimaginable. Paraton.